ATV Talk, the podcast presents Inspired. Sit down with your host, Leonard Duncan, as he interviews men and women whose stories are so inspirational that they need to be shared. Hopefully, their stories may inspire you and create a change. Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years, with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terra Master, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports Tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. GPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV Dampener with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talks Danny Duncan, how are you today? I'm very good. Thanks for coming on ATV Talk. I know you've been on a couple of other episodes with us and uh, you're taking some time out of your busy schedule to... Uh, to sit with us again, uh, you know, the Christmas episode that we just had a few days ago uh, is pretty awesome. You and Mike Co talking, uh, not knowing that I had pushed record. Um, yes, I uh, I listened to it again. And, uh, uh, we kind of just chatted about a variety of things. Well, motorcycles have been a big portion of your life a long time. Same with ATVs. Um, you were telling Valeria a story about back in the day, they didn't have on-the-shelf helmets that you could buy, and you had to make yours. No, uh, yes. Um, correct part of that. They, you could buy uh, helmets, but they were, um, some of them were just a, a, an improved leather helmet with a little more padding and then there was some that had a uh, aluminum cover and then with the padding and everything basically to fit on the leather helmet uh, at the time I started racing you could buy some uh, different helmets of various uh, quality and uh, I got a chance to race my street bike, and I had to have a helmet. So what I done was is I had a big heavy-duty leather helmet, and I had a helmet from a construction worker, which at that time they, they had a round top and a big flat brim, and I cut the brim off, and 
padded the leather helmet inside of this fiberglass shell and laced it up, and that was my helmet. And uh, uh, we just got a motorcycle magazine with uh, with a gentleman's history and everything, and it's those helmets pretty much like uh, what I wore. And this was in the uh, oh the late fifties. When and, uh, when did Bell? Start making helmets. And right about that time, you could buy versions of Bell. Um, I, uh, I it was uh, I started racing, and I raced two or three times, and then family kind of got in the way, and I didn't uh, really start racing every time every weekend. Uh, till about 59, 60, somewhere in there. And about that time, I bought a a better helmet. But... Uh, yeah, because we had your old your old Bell helmet that I remember you wearing for a long time. I think you still may have it somewhere. Yeah, but the, it rotted away. The, all the, the padding kind of just disintegrated. Well, nowadays, they're Snell-approved or dot and you can only use them for X amount of time. And if you hit the ground with it once, it's done. Well, that's a good thing because I hit the ground uh, with my good helmet uh, uh, a couple of times and uh, uh, just kept wearing them, even though I couldn't see a crack, but they hit hard. Well, your helmets back then weighed as much as the motorcycles you were riding. <laughs> I mean, I mean you're talking, we're talking now that helmets, some of the helmets weigh, you know, pound and a half pound, and they're super, super lightweight, and, and they protect us. But back in your day, I mean, it, it, as a little kid, you couldn't pick the helmet up. It was so heavy. Uh, I don't think that's that heavy, but they were heavy. Um, I tried a uh, one of the uh, full-face uh, helmets. And the what you could see was so limited that I couldn't I couldn't wear it because I couldn't see from the side. You could just barely see uh, from the area that they gave you. It was very limited, no sight vision at all. And uh, so I went to an open face and uh, and wore that until they came out with. Uh, with uh, full-face helmets that uh, had more peripheral vision. Anyway, it was... Uh, uh, it sounds great. Just like, just like in uh, football, the, they started with leather helmets. Right. And they just evolved and started uh, uh, getting better. Do you think that the... Concussion-based deals that we deal with in sports today uh, were just as noticeable then, but the doctors or the medical field hadn't caught up yet. Yeah, and in motorcycling, we weren't the you know we weren't a prime factor in in the sports world. So if you bumped your head or something, it was uh, just another motorcycle accident. <laughs> Nobody cared. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that it sounds to me like on your rookie years when you barely started, you're using a self-made helmet and then you kind of like work your way up to like better ones. Basically, yes. Yeah. Well, when I started racing, I also was not uh, a mechanic. Uh, some of the things that happened to my bike uh, were just the typical uh, novice you know, problems, things I didn't check, things I didn't know I was supposed to check. And... Uh, uh, I think I think in the motorcycle, ATV, UTV world, some of the most or the biggest problems that racers have or even enthusiasts is the fact that they don't know what to check or why to check. Uh, you know, maintenance is maintenance is king. The more maintenance you do, the more things you check, the more vulnerable something is, the more often you need to to uh, address the situation, uh, whatever it be, from adjusting your chain to checking your oil to cleaning your air filter. Well, get back, but the, get back to when I started racing. I was my father was a uh, what do you call it? A super fan of of racing, midgets, motorcycles, speedway bikes. We went to races of all kinds when I was a kid, and the uh, my first memory of what they wore was like a uh, a jersey with the name of the bike that they were riding on, and uh, then they had little uh, things that they hung on with their numbers. That, that they uh, strapped to themselves and uh, more like a jersey. But my riding attire uh, was uh, a t-shirt and jeans and maybe uh, a jersey. Uh, I wore uh, work boots. Uh, the end thing at that time was uh, lineman boots for... Uh, that were high top lace up boots, uh, but I can uh, uh, I wore the uh, the lower boots and uh, I treated myself uh, somewhere along the line to a set of leather pants, uh, mainly because of the fact that uh, uh, if you were riding in the desert, you went through the brush and and things, and that protected you, but for the the TT racing and the, the short course stuff, uh, uh, just well, I rode a lot of races with just a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, we, we get it. We get it. We get ourselves in trouble sometimes because when we go test, you know, we wear a helmet and t-shirt and shorts, you know, with our tennis shoes. And, and uh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't say that out loud, did I? <laughs> Oops! You know, so you're just trying to get a feel for something. Maybe you're not riding it in the whoops, or you're not riding it as hard, but you still have to be prepared for it. Um, when we go back, when you go back in time, and you talk about what you did, do you did you ever envision where we are today? Even close? Not even close, because. Uh, if I did, I'd have thought up a lot of things to make my stuff work better. 
I can look back and and see where the the need was there, but the ideas hadn't caught up. Um, performance wise, uh, suspension wise, safety wise, um, it uh, it's like everything. It just takes time for the uh, the safety to pop in because. Uh, racing is expensive, and you can't uh, you can't afford all the good stuff when you're starting out. When you uh, when you raced, you spent a most big portion of your time in Southern California, L.A., San Diego, um, and you did get to race in Mexico. Were you even thinking internationally about racing, or were you still just focused solely on regional? Uh, I never, I was just regional. I, um, uh, I, uh, raced in Mexico and at the time, uh, it didn't seem to be a problem. Um, uh, and mainly because the, the district that I was racing in, um, a couple of the clubs had real good relationships with people in Mexico that helped support the racing down there. Uh, we raced in Ducati and, and uh, Ensenada. And uh, both places had officials of the city that were friends with uh, some of the clubs because there was a... I don't know what you call it. They were just they, buddies. They, they were buddies, and and the uh, the one club, uh, I believe the Los Angeles, had uh, done a lot of work in the orphanages down there, and probably a lot, lot more. Anyway, uh, uh, I always uh, enjoyed racing down there, but. Uh, uh, I raced uh, all up and down the, the coast. Uh, I can't remember the uh, the deal. There was like five or six main tracks uh, in the L.A. area, and I raced all of them. And uh, uh, back then, uh, you would go to uh, scrambles and that we call the scrambles, and they would go out and throw line bags in different areas and you race to that point to the next point and uh, by the time the day was over there was a track there but uh, if you were a novice on that uh, on a lightweight and you were the first ones out you had to ride through the weeds and the bushes until uh, it, it wore down enough to where you know it was a track <laughs> So when you think about the international travel of the sport today, because I know that in 1969, roughly, the three-wheelers came to the United States. And at that point, you didn't see even envision a four-wheeler. Um, you were envisioning a little bigger pistons and intakes and carbs, but maybe not uh, to the, the, the modifications that we have today. Um, what did you think when it went international? Um, are you referring to well, the long, us as a company or as a, uh, us as a company because we were just a little regional company 
and we went national, then we went international. And more so, what I'm trying to grasp is your thought of of what you were thinking when it was going international. I was impressed <laughs> with, a, with our ability to um, build equipment that would win against the best in the world. Uh, when I was running things, uh, we held our own in the uh, the local stuff. in the local stuff. Um, when uh, I decided I didn't uh, want to pursue all of that, uh, and Lauren took over the uh, the thing, we. We continued internationally, at, and and we held our own with uh, with everybody overseas, also. So it, uh, it I was impressed with what we could do. Uh, what do you think the the development was with working with riders like Ricky Johnson and Steve Walker, some of these kids that. That uh, you know, Steve still rides today. Ricky's moved on to trucks. Um, he went through you know Yamaha and Honda as factory guys, and there's quite a few other guys that you worked on their stuff. Uh, you had a relationship with Dick Lachine from Maxima. How much of the development of the company comes from some of those relationships? Uh, I would say quite a bit because when uh, when we were uh, sponsoring people and I would call around the industry if I needed a swing arm or a, a supply of oil or whatever I needed uh, we usually got pretty good response we uh, we were able to uh, to give them their money's worth for whatever products that they uh, they gave us um, How was your relationship with Dickerson? Oh, pretty good. We we talked a few times. We both had boys that raced in the same class, and uh, we were also competitors because of uh, his uh, participation for uh, the dealership that that he was involved with uh, before he became uh, before he went into the the oil business um, some of that I don't even remember now I know that we'd see each other at the track and we were friends but we weren't uh, uh, we didn't hang out how did it come to be that he wanted you to run some of his products uh, we tried different things, and uh, I uh, uh, learned a lot about uh, economy oil. Uh, everything that you read in the the advertisements wasn't always true. Uh, I uh, found some oil that... Uh, that I liked the way the engines looked when you took them apart. 
And uh, I used that uh, quite a bit. And just about the time that that we started having problems with uh, this oil manufacturer because he sold out, uh, he sold his business, and uh, the new guys immediately wanted to economize. And Lachine at that time was it was about the same time that he was going good, and so. Uh, I used some of his oil. It worked good, and we've been uh, we've been affiliated with Maximus for a long, long, for a long time. Yeah. I have a question, Grandpa. Going back to like your writing times. So you once told me a story that was really funny about like when you did kind of like street writing around San Diego and. Um, didn't you say that you like rode on the ramp up some freeway or something like that, or am I not supposed to talk about this? Uh, <laughs> uh, I am not sure what story I told you, but uh, it was uh, that they were like building, you know, one of the freeways, and that it was oh, really smooth, so you would like take your bike there to ride it. Yeah, uh, when when I first went to work for a dealership in. In San Diego, uh, they were just uh, building a section of freeway, and what we done, or what I done, is uh, because you have to test ride all the bikes uh, that you work on, and I would go up on this section of freeway and uh, and ride the uh, whatever bike I was working on, and. Uh, uh, as the, when, after the freeway opened, uh, some of the bikes didn't have enough horsepower supposedly to go on the uh, on the the freeway, and you can't ride them hard enough legally on the street to uh, to see if you've got problems or not, and. Uh, <clears throat> When you were a mechanic, you know, like when you were like in charge of Duncan racing and stuff. So, did you like used to go to like a lot of races, or you like somebody's mechanic? Or I'm just like confused. Did you used to do the same thing that your nano does when he goes to the races, or what's the difference between that? I did this basically the same thing locally. I never, I never went out of the country. Uh, with a race team. But what did you do, like, locally? Like, would you, like, fix the bikes and go with them to the races and be there with them, or...? Yes. Is, basically, you went along to take care of whatever problem there was. Uh, uh, I had one rider that uh, he, I had to do something to the bike to make him settle down. And uh, sometimes I would just take the point cover off, loosen the points, the point plate, wiggle it around, rev it up, put it back together. And then he was satisfied. He was calmed down and he'd go out and most of the time he won. But if I wasn't there to touch the bike, 
he didn't feel confident. And uh, most uh, of the writers uh, that we uh, dealt with uh, needed uh, reassurance that everything was working right. And for me being there, uh, it just seemed to make them, uh, what do you say, calm down. And uh, you would give them advice that... uh, that would tend to uh, bring home a lot of first place trophies. That's that, that's one thing, you know. Standing on the line holding the throttle for your guy, you know, before the gate drops was always a pretty awesome experience for me, you know. And I know you got to do it, and everyone's got to do it, and and you're just looking up into the line, and, you know, at some portions of time in our, of our career. Um, there was every guy had a mechanic doing that, but other times we were the sole people standing on the gate with that machine, and there's no other mechanics. There's dads, there's friends, there's whatever girlfriends. But when you're the only team that rolls out a rider and rolls out a machine, um, it's pretty intimidating for uh, the other guys. Um, I know you told me stories about sitting on the starting line and letting the the national plates uh, psych you out. Yeah, I went to a, a national one time, and I had uh, been fairly competitive in that class, and uh, uh, back at that time, the national numbers could race sporting events, and they were the Oh, white plate numbers. And uh, I went to this one race, and uh, I'm, I done okay in my heat. There was no national numbers in it. But on the main event, there's three national numbers sitting on the starting line. And I made the, the mistake of saying, well, he can beat me, and he can beat me, and he can beat me. And about halfway through the race, I'm uh, um, way back in the pack, and I get bumped from behind, and I looked around, and it was a national number uh, writer. And... About the same time in the switchback, I'm looking over and I see the leader come by, and the second place guy was a guy that I beat pretty regularly. And I decided that I'd better start racing if uh, that's what I came to do. I had not not uh, get beat. Anyway, what I always uh, tried to tell writers later on is that when you're sitting on that starting line, you've got to think you're the guy to beat. Because if you mentally uh, look around and think they're going to beat you, they will. I think that moral of that story is life. I mean, everything in life is that way. When you go in and start your business or you go to whatever it is, you know, if you think that other people are going to outperform you, You've already you've already lost. Yes, yes. 
whether you're playing football, baseball, soccer, whatever the whatever it is, even in business, you have to believe that you are the dominating force, no matter what. Yeah, I I raced in the San Diego area, and you knew who was faster than you and who were, who you were faster than. But I loved to go to L.A. because I didn't know those guys. <laughs> and so when I'm sitting on the line, you know, number one or two doesn't mean anything, you know, I mean, because of the fact you, you don't know the name. And so uh, you're racing against who's, I mean, it's just a different feeling. You go into the first corner and you wait for somebody to shut off. Uh, I, I use your analogy. It was one of the lessons that I learned. I probably didn't use it well enough for myself, um, but it, it's always best when you're talking to a younger rider or a or an up-and-comer, even some of the pros, because sometimes the pros get mulled into uh, an emotional set where, you know, that one guy, they just can't seem to get by that one guy, and you just have to keep reassuring them, hey, you're the guy to be. You're better than this. You're better than that guy. Do not let anybody be. And it was, it's always, you know, it sounds like a broken record when you say the same thing to a guy over, over and over again on the starting line. But Every once in a while, it clicks and they and, and they go faster. Um, Grandpa, what kind of bikes did you used to ride? Because I can sometimes forget when you tell me. Well, the first bike that I ever raced was a Zunda, and it belonged to a, a friend of mine. And uh, but I raced uh, um, Matchless, uh, BSAs, uh, Triumphs. Montessas, Jawas. I, I raced a big variety of, uh, of motorcycles. What was your favorite? Um, I, I think my triumphs were the most satisfying. I'm, I won a lot of races on a BSA. And uh, I rode some bikes that were horrible, horrible handling things and didn't have no power, didn't have any power. And then I rode some stuff that was so unbelievably um, faster than I, I wanted to ride. <laughs> Does a specific race with the Triumph comes to your mind? Like, did something happen that was just unusual? Or is it just going and racing because you know you have like grandma and the kids that gave it go with you one uh, well I don't remember a particular race but I can remember that um, I was at a race one uh, one uh, a day and the we were racing late in the afternoon so the the um, when it got dusk, the dark spots in the on the track, I couldn't tell whether they were holes or whether they were um, 
just damp spots. And it started me to thinking that I had a couple of little fat kids at home that I uh, had to feed. And, <laughs> and I decided that uh, I had to uh, either get better glasses or uh, start thinking about something else. Because uh, if you have to think about turning when you're racing, uh, it's got to be an, a, a, just a reaction what you do. And if you're worried about falling off or something like that, it's not the place to be. What was what Larry was trying to ask, what was your most memorable race on the train? I, or just pick a race. Well, I can't remember a good race. I I can remember uh, I had a gold star that that I raced, which is a single cylinder BSA, and from the time I bought it, as I'd go into a corner at speed, uh, it would want to fall. I mean, it it just didn't feel stable. And in this one race, I let it go all the way and it stopped into where when you were in a slide, it would go to a certain position and then it wouldn't fall any farther. I mean, it was, I could control it. And it made a huge difference of how I could ride it. And I always remembered that particular day on that bike. But, uh, uh, you have good races and bad races on all of the bikes. Uh, one other thing, when I was first starting out, I I was talking to some of these veterans that have uh, been racing for a while, and I was trying to, how do I make it go faster? And this one guy told me, he says, if you want it to go faster, he says, leave it on longer. You know, and brake later and turn it on sooner, you know, or quicker. And he says, you'll go a lot faster. I used to think of that uh, quite often. The analogy nowadays is corner speed. If you have higher corner speed and you can maintain your momentum through the turn better than everybody else, you're going to be faster. Well, that's basically if you leave it on longer, you're going to go faster. And if you uh, break later, you, you drive through the turns faster, you make more power, you, you, you end up doing... We're not reinventing the wheel. You know? No, they've been doing the same thing you know, since racing began. It's a lot of fun. Well, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I uh, uh, I always enjoyed if my bikes were faster. <laughs> it wasn't always the case, but uh, um, it was um, always amazing that you could have uh, 15 guys sitting on the starting line and maybe 10 different mechanics uh, or more. And basically, they're all just about as fast. 
it's just how fast or how far the writer turns the throttle. You know, I mean, a lot of the last place guys have bikes that are uh, potential winners if the if the guy rode it harder. Right, right. Then there's some of the guys that believe that massive horsepower gets you to the finish line first, and that's not always the case. No, no. Too much horsepower is is just sometimes just as bad as not enough horsepower. When did you start believing in rideable, usable horsepower? I built a BSA uh, that ran pretty good, and I made some major changes, and I took it to the track, and I could not ride it because... Every time I turned on the throttle, it lifted the front wheel and tried to go sideways. And I couldn't feather the throttle enough to to get it to hook up. Uh, once you would get out on a straightaway and and line it up, uh, it was a rocket ship. But you couldn't. I couldn't ride it in the corners. I couldn't. Uh, uh, I couldn't keep it in a straight line. And so I brought it home and detuned it a little bit. And it was way better to ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just a theory that you've been using since I was a kid. What was it like for you to watch Lauren and I race? Scary. <laughs> <laughs> was when, that bad? When, no, no. It's just when when it's somebody else that you've done the work on it's one thing but when it's your own kids out there it it's not fun to watch them go fast uh it's scary did you work on their bikes though like um Lawrence and Leonard's? yeah yeah at times uh <laughs> i had them do a lot of the maintenance but when we first started i worked on uh on their bikes and how did they feel when they won though well, that's oh, you love that, but you still worry about them falling off or getting hurt. Uh-oh. I don't think I won very often. Lauren won more when we were kids, to my to the way I remember it. Yeah, it's hard, different to. Sometimes I don't think you had a racer's mind when you were young, when you were really young. You enjoyed going out there and riding, but you didn't have the heart of the racer until you got a little older. Yeah, I just wish I could have turned that switch on myself a lot younger. Uh, competitive. I just wasn't competitive. Well, not all racers are competitive to start with. Uh, you know, very few just immediately are, are fast. And uh, I didn't want to put pressure on uh, on either one of you and have you go out and get yourself hurt. It's, yeah. it's dangerous enough just as a fun thing. I don't remember. I don't remember crashing at a racetrack and getting hurt per se, like I did more so when I was freaking playing around in the backyard. 
Well, I can remember a couple of times that you scared the hell out of me you, when you uh, had a problem on the track. <laughs> well, you know, I can't, I can't help that. I, mean, uh, I think I stuck my leg in somebody's uh, rear tire once. Yeah, you wrapped your three-wheeler around a post one time. Well, I was I was having a good day. Well, it, that one was funny because of the fact that you were also racing motorcycles at the same time. And on a motorcycle, you could lean into the corner as tight as you can. And on a three-wheeler, you got to be careful because you got an outrigger there that uh, just re- reached out and grabbed that pole. You know, it was a different format at Verona that day. And uh, they were running a, a TT in the morning and then a motocross in the afternoon. And we signed up in the TT. And <clears throat> for some reason, I was just having a day. And um, I think I was in fourth and Mark Kirst was in third. And uh, I had been making my way through the field. And uh, there was no way on the outside. I think him and I were passing somebody at the same time. And he went to the outside and I went to the inside. And I knew it was going to be tight, but I thought I could make it. Obviously, I didn't. But uh, I remember, I do remember standing at the fence line with you going, Hey, Dad, that's my race. You know, let's, I got, we got to go. It's like, No, I think you're done for the day, son. <laughs> I mean, I, not that I think that that's a, it's a great memory to have. But I didn't enjoy crashing, I don't think. No, but, no nobody. Enjoys crashing, but uh, it even happens when you're not even racing. So I understand. Well, you know, Valeria had never been to the sand dunes. Last weekend, we took her out there. I borrowed Randy at GPR's uh, Yamaha UTV, and and uh, yeah, I've driven pretty much all the various various ones, and and I'd driven Randy's in the magazine article, but we were out there playing a little cat and mouse with uh, Kyle Fuller and his talent, and. Um, well, I was playing though. I wasn't playing. She was holding on for dear life. I was having a great time. I upshifted when I should have downshifted, and just sank in the sand. And um, when we came to when we came to the rest, uh, we were on our side after we rolled. And uh, we rolled twice, Grandpa, twice. So I had to break her in, break her into the to the dunes the the right way. You know, give her something to talk about for the rest of her life. I don't know if Randy's ever going to talk to me again because his car's beautiful and there's no scratches on it. It's, there's still no scratches on it, really. It's still a really beautiful car, but the only instruction I was given was don't roll my car. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say don't get it dirty. He didn't say don't jump it. He didn't say anything like that. He just said don't roll my car. Uh, obviously, I didn't listen well enough. No, that's things like that happen, but. Uh... So as the evolution of motorcycles, and, and I know that you and I enjoy MotoGP and we enjoy F1, um, we, we listen to those. But as you look at the elevation, the evolution, excuse me, of of motorsports, and you look at where we're, we've gone and where we're going, um, do you think the popularity of off-road racing in the ATV world will come back? 
I really don't know for sure. I don't. I don't think so because I don't think that the bureaucrats wanted to come back. I think that they they closed down everything and and make it very difficult to uh, to put on races and and plus there's uh, there's just not a uh, with the liabilities and the, all this, you know, toes you step on when you have a big race or an off-road race. What, what year did you start seeing them having the waivers to sign? Uh, I don't remember because uh, I I can remember early on a couple of races that I rode that you you signed a, a waiver to get in the gate it, just to be a spectator. Back in the 50s Way back in the, in the 50s. Wow. Uh, it didn't happen all the time, but the, if you were racing on somebody's private property, uh, is usually when it happened. Uh, because back when I started, you could race on private property. Now, uh, the liability, you'd be scared to uh, to let them uh, do that. Yeah, I know there was a big issue in Arizona because most of the rate land that they raced on in Arizona is public. And if you sue for it, you're suing the, the state of Arizona. And I know that that... Um, I know that they, they could have some issues there, you know. Well, I... I I know there could be a problem. I just don't give it a lot of thought because I'm beyond the uh, age of worrying about all that. What do you mean? It's still, racing is still such a huge portion of your life as far as watching races. And uh, Do you still have any of the competitive ideas in your head? Yes. I I liked it when I had a uh, a brand of bike that that had the potential and I could work on it and and develop it as a racer. Um, but as time goes on, uh, most of the the bikes are, are pretty damn good when they come off the. The line, and um, you've got to be so precise with things anymore, or you detune. And uh, uh, you can improve suspension, but um, the motor packages the motor packages is uh, is good, and you can improve on it. But you got to pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, well, you've been around developing heads for what going on fifty years now. Uh, pretty cool. Yeah. So, when you look back at some of the the old, you, you've even worked on all the stuff was cast iron. Yes. Sure. Yeah, that, I said that cast iron for those people that are listening that that, that aren't that old when everything was made out of aluminum. The cast iron stuff was pretty primitive, and you had to modify it to make it work correctly. Yeah. Well, the, 
back when I first started working on things, they they were racing everything. Um, you know, they've been racing for a lot of years before I ever started. But um, the uh, the cast iron was just heavier. Um, it was a little more uh, took a little more work for. Uh, doing any modifications and the people that had done the modifications there wasn't uh, not everybody had a lathe or a mill or uh, a grinder they just didn't have things to, to work on it so it had to be a guy that specialized or that had a machine shop that could do some of that stuff and and uh, did you develop some of your own tooling for this? I I learned a lot because I would worked in aircraft and I was uh, worked in tooling and aircraft, so I learned how to run a lot of machines. And later on, I, when I would uh, light cranks or just modify things, it was so much simpler. To modify if you if you uh, if you had the good equipment to work with, and uh, uh, the um, first shop I worked at, um, the uh, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, there was a valve grinder sitting back in a corner and uh, the shop foreman told me it didn't work. It wasn't any good. And so I, in my spare time, when nobody was looking, I pulled it out and cleaned it up and checked it out and I found it. It did work. And uh, I started doing some valve jobs and um, some modifying some valves and doing little things with it. And uh, it was just a kind of a learning experience. And a lot of the things that you do is is kind of an experiment because not everything works. Do you think it's more cut and dry today really what works? Or do you think that we're still in the same learning curve as you were back in the, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s? Uh, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a little less when, I mean, you know what to expect because of the fact that there's, you know, so many different things been done. Um, you can tell a lot of times uh, where the weak points are and uh, every time that you start working on an engine to make it put out a little more power, um, there's a lot of parts in that engine and transmission that are already maxed out. So when you put a little more stress on them, then something breaks. So then you have to modify that so that you can make more power. Um, without something breaking. And on a lot of the old stuff, uh, 
they work good at moderate speeds, but you start spinning them faster or up in the compression or just doing the things you do to make power, um, they'd uh, break. Quick way to figure out if the crank is strong enough or not is add some compression, right? All right. And but a lot of it, you learn what you can look at some things and say, there's nothing you can do to that particular thing without a major modification. And um, some things uh, were easier to modify and and, uh, and you get good results. But uh, is it hard for you to believe that the old school motor design where they were longer stroke with a big round, with a big heavy piston, now they have short stroke with a large diameter piston, but it's very, you know, it's only an inch tall or less, and they rev higher than the two strokes? I I have always been a four-stroke fan. Uh, I built a lot of two strokes, but I, I liked four strokes. And I found out that uh, in most cases, an you know, over-square motor worked good, and if you could spin them faster, it worked good. And depending on what it was for, as to where, where and how big a carburetor or you know, where you located the carburetor, um, so many engines uh, work good, but they're just not designed for major improvements. I mean, they, the way that they uh, they were designed don't uh, don't lend themselves to uh, hop up without a lot of uh, a lot of work. And I found that over the years that customers don't want to pay a lot of money for that. They'll go buy something else that goes faster. And uh, um, it's, it, it, is, it is kind of uh, different because customers do. Uh, they want it to go super fast, and it's a point and shoot thing. They're not they're not as much into rideable, usable horsepower as they their egos want them to have the most horsepower. Well, I always felt that what they want is something that they can pull out on the straightaway and pass everybody, and then when they get to the rough stuff, they can slow down and cut through it, and then just beat everybody on the straightaway. And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but but the average guy, that's what he wants. He wants right. something that's that's safe to ride in a straight line as fast as you can go and then walk through the corners. And it doesn't work like that. You have no. to have corner speed. You have to have all of the elements. So you like some of the evolution in the new motor designs then? Oh, I do, but uh, it's been a number of years that since I 
really done uh, development work on. Uh, well, you on still stuff. you're still doing. I, I do a lot of work on the heads uh, of stuff that that uh, we have now. Um, I can be consistent now because I can put things exactly the same and you know on every head that I work on. Where before, when you started moving things around with stones, it uh, it was a little bit uh, more tricky to get everything to be the exactly like you want. Do you think the skill level was up for that in the stone cutting, or do you think it's just as skillful today? It should you have better tooling. Oh, some guys is amazing, but it's so time consuming. You put big valves in where all you had is, is stones to uh, to do it. Uh, uh, and a lot of the cutter systems that we had back then were a pain in the ass to uh, to get to do what it was supposed to do. Um, it it uh, what I'm trying to get at is is do you think that the consistency with the tooling makes it better now, or do you think the craftsmanship of the old days, you know, with the with the more uh, prehistoric tools? Well, the, the old guys. I mean the. the before my time, uh, they done amazing things with the uh, the uh, tooling and the uh, and the stuff they had to work with. I mean, they had some uh, some uh, good running equipment, but um, things didn't change as often as they do now. Um, Back then, uh, engine style for a certain bike would uh, would be the same for years, and so they could develop it slowly. and And, uh, and by the time it was over, uh, um, I don't. I think the development. I, I like the the slower change in machines because it gives the independent industry. Uh, a longer time to, to play with the factory's modifications when they change them too fast. You're working so hard and so fast to develop what there is. I don't think you're as um, proficient in it, and I don't think the development of the product is as good. It's rushing the whole process. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. But yeah, yeah, it's just like the Chevy V8s. Oh, for so long, we're basically the same. So that the the um, oh, I can't the independent guy could make parts for them, and uh, yeah, they still are. I mean, the the small block Chevy is probably the the greatest design for an engine. Still, as much as I choke on saying that, because I despise Chevrolet, but that's just neither here nor there. Um, but I mean, it's still it's awesome. It's an awesome platform. You can't take anything away from it, um, Dad. I want to say thank you very much for spending an afternoon with me. Um, I know that uh, you uh, you have your hands full right at the moment with 
with mom and, and still working a full schedule and trying to play in your tour background. Um, so I, I appreciate you taking the day out and spending some time with us at ATV Talk. Um, words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. Um, I have no. <laughs> Hold it on longer, turn it on sooner. Well, if you want to go fast, that's that's a good. There you go. Uh, your other motto was a kid that I have, I have a T-shirt for ATV Talk that says "Keep it simple, stupid." Uh, the Kiss method. You taught me that one too. Well, the more complicated you get on your equipment or life, it's just harder to maintain. Um, that's very true. So uh, I always try to keep the builds that I do and the things that I do as simple as possible. Um, I know that uh, you are a great teacher in teaching me a lot of those things. And sometimes the most simplistic way to do something is the best way because it's the most durable. Uh, it's the easiest to fix in a stressful situation. Because when you go to the racetrack and there's a problem, if you've kept it simple, you usually find the problem instantly and move on from it and then go on. If you made it too complex, then you're getting into a whole new development program and, and you're at the racetrack. You don't have time for that. No. No. Uh, I don't know how that's that's okay, Dad. We had a wonderful conversation, and uh, I appreciate you telling your stories. And we'll get you back again to uh, to, to enlighten us with some more of the old time stuff. Um, I know that there are plenty of writers out there, like Steve Walker and Ricky Johnson, that appreciated your skills. And there's a whole list of other guys, you know, myself and, and Lauren included, that uh, really enjoy what you've done. I know that. Um, Brian Fuller and, and his brother wrote some of your stuff when they were younger and, and other guys like that in the San Diego area. Um, I know Mike Coe enjoys talking to you because you guys did a lot of the same stuff. So I have a thing on Ricky Johnson. <clears throat> when we first started going to the mini bike races, Ricky was still a little guy. He wrote a little... Uh, Yamaha. I don't remember what, which one, but he was a, a mid-packer. Well, this one particular day, he got the whole shot. And he was probably 50 feet, 50 foot in front of second place. And he goes into the corner and you can see him turn around and look back. Because he was amazed that he was so far out in front. <laughs> and the pack about run over him. Yeah. Because I mean, he shut off his look. Because I think he wondered, where is everybody? Because usually he's right in the middle of it. And from that day on, he just started going faster. It was like uh, he figured out how to get the start. And and he was just amazed that he was so far out in front of everybody. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Dad. Thanks again. Uh, remember, everybody, this is Danny Duncan. He's a legend in our sport because he was one of the beginning people building 
ATV motors when they were just came out in the 60s and 70s. And uh, we'll get him back on to have him talk some more. Thanks for listening to ATV Talk and have a great day. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.